Hey everyone, I'm Kelsey Snow, and this is Sorry, I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Welcome to season two. I want to thank everyone who listened and shared this podcast during season one, and I especially want to thank the people who joined me for our conversations last season. I learned so much from each of them, and I'll always feel humbled that people feel comfortable sharing their stories with me in this space. Now, for new listeners, a little background. When my husband Chris was 37 years old, he noticed some weakness in two fingers on his right hand. A couple of months after that, he noticed some muscle wasting on the outside of his right palm, and by then we knew what was coming for us. Not even a year earlier, Chris's dad had died of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, the terminal neurodegenerative disease that kills motor neurons that enable muscle movement, leaving those afflicted eventually unable to move, talk, eat, and breathe on their own. Doctors told Chris he had 6 to 12 months to live. That was two years ago. Since then, Chris's voice has changed and he's lost the use of his right hand, along with the ability to smile, make facial expressions, and swallow most foods. But thanks to a promising clinical trial, he's still here. The medicine hasn't stopped Chris's ALS, but it's given us the gift of time. Time to be better people, to love each other more completely, to learn things about ourselves, and to see the world in a different way. We have learned, and are still learning, hard, painful lessons about how to live in this place where sadness and joy, pain and beauty, devastation and hope all coexist. What I've learned about life is that grief is, of course, universal. And while sharing the constant push and pull of my grief feels right to me, it's not for everybody. Still, I think that even if you don't want to share your story out loud with the world, you want to hear other people's stories. You want to feel that sense of community. You want to know that you aren't alone in this, and that's really what this podcast is, a space where we can talk about our grief honestly, where we can share with the world these raw parts of ourselves and see what happens when we do that. Because in my experience, what happens when I do that is I feel lighter. I feel stronger. I feel like I can keep going. And that's how I hope you feel after listening. One year ago at this time, it felt like our life was spiraling out of control. After a summer of grieving Chris's smile, he started losing the ability to swallow. From September until he got his feeding tube at the end of November was an exhausting and scary time for our family. And as we head into this same part of the calendar one year later, remembering all of this has been surprisingly hard for me. Preparing for this conversation with Chris brought up physical anxiety and a bunch of grief that had to be observed all over again. Thinking about the losses Chris had last year at this time also sent me down a road of anticipatory grief that has, well, really sucked. (laughs) The things Chris has lost to this point, as you'll hear us talk about in our conversation, haven't actually changed our lives that much. He's still independent. He can still take care of himself and the kids with no help. He can drive and go to work and do all of the things he wants to do. But preparing for this episode made me come face to face with the reality that the next loss, whatever it is, and whenever or if ever it should come, will not be without significant change to our lives. The quote-unquote easy losses, which it's a horrible way to describe them, but I can't think of another, are over. Life for a one-handed, non-smiling, non-swallowing person is pretty doable. Take away the other hand, or a foot, or a leg, or the ability to breathe unaided, and things get a whole lot more complicated. And so I briefly thought about not doing season two at all, about scrapping this whole thing and saying one season of a podcast was plenty and I'm all done, thank you very much, because continuing to share means I might have to someday share that kind of shitty news that I just described. But grief is a lot like that book, Going on a Bear Hunt, I used to read to the kids. You can't go over it. 
can't go under it. You've got to go through it. And so that's what we did. This conversation relives some of the worst months of our lives. They were brutal, but we got through it. And if we have to face more losses in the future, I know we will get through those too. One last thing before we get to it. Sorry I'm Sad is a labor of love, and I mean that literally, from finding guests and researching topics to preparing for interviews and recording and editing all the audio myself, a great deal of time, energy, and thought goes into each episode. So if you value this podcast and want to offer your support to keep it going, you can go to www.patreon.com slash Kelsey Snow and become a member. Okay, so we are back again for season two of Sorry I'm Sad, and I have roped you into another conversation. I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> you hoped I'd never ask. I like it. Oh, man. So <clears throat> this episode is about swallowing. And in the spirit of honesty, swallowing is something that we spend, what, how, mu- how much time do you think we spend talking about and thinking about your swallowing in a given day? After parenting, <laughs> coffee number two. Yeah, like for instance... And we'll get into all the the whys of this, but just trying to start this conversation, you needed to eat. And we were trying to figure out if you should eat before or after. Now, so so the issues with Chris's swallowing muscles is that they're weakened. And what we've learned about that means that it kind of keeps you from moving things down. But that also means that once there's things in your stomach... It also keep, it also doesn't really hold it down very well. So Chris has, deals with a lot of reflux. And after he eats, he needs to sit up for a long time. And the challenge with that is that when he talks, to talk as clearly as he can, he needs to lie back. <laughs> and not lean over forward. And not lean over forward. Yeah, that that basically is a recipe for disaster, so leaning if I, forward. If I eat and then need to pick up, say, a paper clip... <laughs> I essentially do a squat, and it looks utterly ridiculous. Chris has really taken the lift with your legs <laughs> thing to the far extreme. He like lifts, goes only down with his legs to pick up a piece of paper. Back straight. <laughs> it does look kind of ridiculous, but but that's what we've learned. So so right before we started this, there was a lot of spitting going on and trying to kind of clean things out because the other issue that Chris deals with. Um, pretty consistently is that there's kind of a lot of like, it's, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's mucus. It's kind of like saliva. This is really attractive conversation, but it's kind of like some of his saliva starts to dry and then it kind of gets stuck in his back of his throat just because he doesn't swallow like a lot, like kind of, we're always swallowing our saliva and he doesn't. And so that stuff kind of sits back there and that impacts his voice. It makes it less clear. Um, and that's pretty big. It's a pretty big issue for your speech, we've learned. Yeah, I envision the words having to fight through that saliva. And I would say that's one of three or four issues that complicate talking. But easily the most noticeable to me, if anything at all has been in my mouth or in my throat in the way of liquid, uh, or if I'm just dealing with it, because of the time day that is. Yeah. So luckily there's editing. And if Chris has to spit, 
<laughs> we can just edit that out because nobody needs to hear that. I have to hear it enough. <laughs> but this was unexpectedly hard. This conversation was unexpectedly hard for me to prepare for. Um, I knew that this was the hardest part that what we went through, it started about a year ago, a year ago in August, um, when Chris's swallowing started to, I guess the swallowing muscle started to atrophy. And I knew going into kind of planning this conversation that, that this, this would be real reliving the hardest part of our sort of ALS experience to this point so far. Um, because I think that the things that happened to Chris before he started to lose his swallowing, um, well, I know that losing your hand was not a small thing, but you made it feel like a small thing to us because you never complained about it. And you really just rolled with that. So flawlessly, I still don't really understand how you did that, but it didn't feel like a change to our daily life. It didn't even feel like a change to your health really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you st- started to lose your smile and you started to have some atrophy of your face, facial muscles, um, again, that was like sad, but it didn't also didn't seem like it was impacting your health in any way. It was just like, this sucks because we don't get to see his smile anymore. But for me, as the person who's kind of charged with taking care of you, um, this was the first thing for me that I had to, that I felt like, oh shit, like, what am I going to do? I felt helpless because as every ALS caregiver knows, it is horrible to not be able to do something to help the person that you love when they are losing something. Um, And this was really the first time where I felt like I had to deal with that. And it was scary too. I mean, it was really scary um, because not being able to swallow the way you find out that your swallowing is not going the way it should be is that you choke. And so we'll talk about all those things. And, and I figured we just kind of start chronologically. Um, You told me in late August last year, Uh, it was actually after we had been to the hospital for your monthly spinal tap to get the medication that Chris gets in the clinical trial. And I had done my like little update, you know, breathing, no change, muscle test, no change, swallowing, no change. And that was what I thought was the truth. (laughs) And then we went out for lunch after that. And we were at the river cafe. It was a beautiful day in August And they brought out, you know, that delicious bread that they have there and butter. And that was the first time that you told me that you'd been dealing with something. You just described it as having to swallow twice. Mm -hmm. And the way that people in the ALS community would talk about it is called, they call it double swallowing, which is not that you're choking. It's that you swallow something and you just feel like you need one more swallow to get it all the way down. Mm -hmm. And you had found this with bread yeah there were three meals in particular that month that i i realized that this was not right uh one we went to a uh, pump track with friends and afterwards got mcdonald's and you were taking the trash out and had a few fries and they really you know they're 
how do I describe? Not a surprise. They're, they just kind of all stuck together, I felt like, as I chewed them and attempted to swallow and had to kind of regurgitate those. And didn't So wait, say, you actually spit that out? You uh-huh. Oh, and you never told me didn't that. Didn't say anything. Mm. And you attempted successfully on your end to make steak tips, mm-hmm. which are a New England thing where you take tip steak and marinate it. And I found that they need to be really chewed to swallow. And a third was we had Domino's one night, and I found that the combination of the pizza, but especially the crust, mm-hmm. was a challenge. And those three things had me really concerned. Yeah. Why didn't you tell me right away? Because I knew that there was nothing you could do, and not until I was certain that there was an issue because I feel like I should tell you. Yes. So for me, <laughs> this makes me so like, because <laughs> at that point we still hadn't been to the ALS clinic. So the ALS clinic is a multidisciplinary clinic that ALS patients go to and they see a whole host of different types of specialists there. A respirologist, a neurologist, a dietitian, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, um, what did I say? Dietitian. Who else am I missing? Speech language pathologist, mm-hmm. um, a social worker. Anyway, a number of different people that you can see. Um, and in the summer when Chris's face had started to change, I had said, I think we should go to the ALS clinic. We had kind of said that until we needed something from the ALS clinic, we wouldn't go to the ALS clinic. And when his smile started to change, I felt like, well, we need to get on this because if we need something, we need to not be scrambling. And, um, so by the time he told me that he was double swallowing, we still hadn't even an appointment at the ALS clinic so far as I can remember. Um, and so I immediately started to worry about what that could mean, uh, because Chris's smile disappeared really quickly. And I was really concerned about the speed at which your swallowing would disappear. And so the end result for ALS patients when they are losing their ability to swallow is a feeding tube. And these appointments take time to get, and we'd never even seen a doctor really because Mm -hmm. going for Chris's, I mean, we went every month for Chris's clinical trial visit, but the reality is that's not really a doctor's appointment. Like they're not there to give you advice. They're not there to check up on you. They're just there to check the boxes of whatever the trial, like the company that is hosting the trial is, is asking for them to do. And that's really it. And so I'm sure we could have asked questions and everything, but they would have just referred us to the clinic. So, and so I wondered going back and looking at kind of the timeline, like what that looked like. And that was August 24th. Um, on September 12th, I sent a message to the woman that I speak with a lot in Miami and told her that I noticed that you were clearing your throat a lot more, um, but that you still hadn't had any issues with like choking or like what you would commonly call going something going down the wrong way. And she mentioned, you know, yes, that double swallowing was the first thing that lots of ALS patients notice and that more throat clearing means like things aren't going the way they should be basically. So now we know that this is happening. Um, and then on September 25th, 
I messaged her because you had really choked on water, which the word word for that is that you aspirated Mm -hmm. water, water went into your lungs and it was terrifying. Yeah. I think that was the, even to date, the worst episode of any kind that I've had associated with ALS. I went to the fridge and filled the water glass. I was really thirsty Mm -hmm. and drank it like gulp, gulp, gulp. Mm -hmm. And the third gulp went wrongly. And I don't know what it feels like to drown, but I sense that it feels like what that felt like. And not knowing how to breathe through that, I did the worst thing, which was to try to take these huge deep breaths through my mouth. And all I could hear was that... And nothing yep. really getting in. Because as I understand it, when you do that, your body essentially damps off your lungs mm-hmm. so nothing else can go down there mm-hmm. until you relax yourself. And I was in the kitchen and did that for a matter of several seconds. And that really quickly woke up and came running downstairs, just terrified. And so you, I think, sent me toward the back door outside where that continued. And I don't know how long it lasted, but I had to think at least 30 seconds. It was terrifying. It, you, I think the worst part for me was the look in your eyes because I'd never, no matter, like throughout all of this, like I'd never seen you legitimately scared. And you were very scared. You didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able to breathe again. You, yeah, you didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. Like, I knew it was water, but I didn't know what to Like, I can't give you the Heimlich maneuver for water. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I remember asking you, like, should I call 911? Like, what were they going to tell me to do? Mm-hmm. And then Cohen came downstairs, and he was just hysterical. Like, what's happening? What's going on? Oh, Daddy just daddy just needs – he just had some water go down the wrong way, and he, you you couldn't speak, and you were making that noise that you just – made and it was louder. it's a ter- scary noise so that was horrible because you know we hadn't really at that point even talked to the kids about you starting to have any swallowing issues because i don't even think we really understood how what was coming how quickly it would come right i still eat every meal but yeah and water can be the first thing that's hard for people um because it's liquid and you know, just slides out. Yeah, it can go the wrong way and all that. But so the fear when you aspirate f- food, you have something goes down the wrong way, obviously, when you have ALS, is that you can get aspiration pneumonia, which is when you get something in your lungs and that creates an infection. Um, so usually that's not a f- too big of a fear with water because there's not really anything in there to cause an infection. But um, But we didn't know that. We didn't know anything at that point. And so we went kind of still going about things and just decided, okay, well, you need to be seated when you drink water and you need to take smaller sips. And we started, I started doing a lot of research about that. And I continued to talk with the person in Miami and then, and then, um, Canadian Thanksgiving came, which in, in Canada is, is around the time of Columbus day in the U S right. And, um, at that point, COVID was still not so bad. So in Calgary, you could have cohort families. And we had decided to cohort with a couple families that lived in our neighborhood and our kids went to the same school because we figured they were all sharing germs already anyway. 
and they were going to come over for Thanksgiving. And I love those days. Like I love cooking and I love all of that. Um, and it was really the first time we'd gotten to spend time with our friends in that way. So I was having a really great day and you were at work for part of it. And then you came home and right around the time we were going to eat dinner. And I was not really paying a lot of attention of paying a lot of attention to you and what was happening with you. But maybe you can take me through what that, what was going on for you during that meal. I was eating really slowly. And by that time I realized that talking and eating at the same time are not my friend. Mm -hmm. And I just recall looking at my plate and thinking, this is not really getting cleared. Yeah. And feeling increasingly frustrated, uh, aware of the fact that this was this was likely to be the case anytime we had friends and ate in a social situation. Mm-hmm. And eating is social often. Uh, it's how you get together with friends often. Mm-hmm. And with everyone in our house, I really wanted nothing more than for all them to leave mm-hmm. and for it to be done. Yeah. And that was hard for us because I think that was the first time where we experienced this thing where like I was having a good day and you were having a bad day. And we ended up arguing afterward about something that probably had nothing to do with really what actually happened, which was just that you were struggling and I didn't see it. And I felt like I was getting kind of all this day that I had was just kind of swept out from under me because you were upset after and we just weren't on the same page. And I think that was one of the really the only times that that's happened. Yeah. I've I've always enjoyed a loud table with friends and inserting myself at their energy level and pace. And that day, I just felt like everyone was so loud and eating so fast. And I was more of an observer than the participant I had been. And I think it was the start of knowing that we were going to have to grieve that, the loss of the dinner party as we knew it, right? Which is Mm -hmm. a big deal. Like, it's such a social thing to eat. and, And then eating became a job instead of something that was enjoyable really from that time on, I would say. It, it became nearly the equivalent of a full-time work week. Yeah. Yeah. So by the middle of October, you were losing weight and that, that was the problem. Like you could not consume enough calories to maintain your weight anymore. And that's a fear for ALS patients. Um, ALS, I think I've mentioned this before, puts you in a hypermetabolic state and you already have a high metabolism. Mm-hmm. So we just couldn't, we, we just couldn't kind of keep up with it. It got to that point, but it was around, it was not long after Canadian Thanksgiving that you had a choking episode at the table in front of Cohen and Willa. And I wonder if you remember that one. I think it was the night that we had shrimp at Orzo and I, I wasn't taking huge bites because I was aware of the risk. But a smaller bite of shrimp got stuck enough to the point that I had to kind of cough it out and I got off and went straight to the bathroom. And so it wasn't a full-on choking episode, 
but it certainly said to me that this is going to happen. Yeah. And that, and that meant that we had to have that conversation with the kids. So then we had to talk to them about how just like your hand stopped working and just like your smile went away that your swallowing is controlled by muscles. And what it seemed like was that your swallowing muscles were, were also getting weak. And we kind of explained it to them, like, you know, that you'll have to, daddy will have to be really careful and he'll have to eat slowly and he'll have to not talk while he eats. And we're going to have to make sure that dad eats a lot of milkshakes and, and stays, you know, nice and strong. And I think the thing that really stands out to me still is that at that point, which was the middle of October, we said, you know, someday dad might get to the point where he can't eat enough with his mouth. And then he would get a tube put in his belly and we would put the food right in his belly. And I remember saying that to them and it felt like that was going to, it still felt like that was going to be something that was far away. And you ended up with a feeding tube six weeks later. I recall because COVID then had us working from home. I recall sitting at the table in the dining room and spending essentially the entire work day eating. Mm -hmm. So I'd have my laptop, I'm working, and I'm working on eating. And you were making a really calorie-rich oatmeal, and I was eating three to four eggs in the morning. For some reason, I could still do sausage, and so the sausage, sausage patties were a, a daily thing. And I was going to the gym a lot of those nights, and I would stop at Dairy Queen every night and get a large Oreo milkshake. Mm -hmm. And at times, one person or another who wasn't a regular would say, we don't have those. <laughs> I'd say, uh, I'm pretty sure you do. I come every single night. <laughs> and then one of the girls working there learned my name. So I'd walk in. And she would just turn around and start making it. <laughs> yeah. And that was 1,200 calories. Yeah. And, and I had to do that. Yeah. And I remember when we talk about, and we got to the point where every single day we were taking foods off the list of things you could eat. I remember one of the worst days. You had eaten French toast for, for breakfast one yeah. morning. And so I made it for you again because I can... I can put a lot of eggs in that and I can put a lot of butter on that, a lot of syrup on that. So I can make that pretty calorie heavy and you tried for an hour and a half to eat it and you couldn't eat it. Mm -hmm. And that was when for me, I thought this has to happen fast. Like we need to get this surgery as quickly as we possibly can, because now we are losing things every single day. And I was making you a lot of eggs and there was a point where I would make you an over easy egg. And if the yolk got even marginally cooked, I had to throw it away because that made it impossible for you to eat. And as usual, you were aware of something before I was, you know, a theme of marriage. <laughs> You'd get there before I would. And I recall going to see the people at the clinic and the lead neurologist was there and you asked him what a feeding tube and when. And he said either last week, last month, or two days ago, but something to suggest I was there. And in my mind, because I was just trying to fight through eating, mm -hmm. that wasn't as uh, impending mm -hmm. as everyone else realized it to be. Yeah. So I think 
The hardest part for me during this was balancing trying to feed you and keep you healthy enough, like that you weren't losing too much weight. A lot of doctors think that not getting enough nutrition can speed up progression. And so that was a very scary thing for me. Um, And then I was balancing like my own sadness over what was happening. And then this was the first time that we really dealt with the kids own anxiety and sadness because Cohen in particular had a lot of anxiety. Uh, He is a kid who's sensitive anyway. And then seeing these little like choking episodes you have, and I call them little choking episodes because I know most people who are ALS caregivers have done the Heimlich maneuver on their person. And I have never had to do that on you. And And so I call them little choking episodes for that reason, because I never had to, I never had to hide like you, um, which I find I'm very grateful for, (laughs) but, um, and knock on wood, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, cause Chris does still eat some things by mouth, but, but yeah, I, I remember during that time you were at work one night later and the kids and I were eating at the dinner table and Willis said something to Cohen, like Cohen in a hundred years, you and I will be grandparents. And I was like, Willa, in a hundred years, you and Cohen will be dead. <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, well, people just don't live to be 106 and 109. <laughs> and she was like, really? And then and Cohen said, mommy, in a hundred years, you'll be. And I was like, Cohen, in a hundred years, I will absolutely be dead. I told him, you know, the only thing that we really know about life is that we're all going to die at some point. And he kind of frowned and he he looked up at me and he had these really sad eyes. And he said, I just wish I had the resurrection stone. And the resurrection stone is this thing in Harry Potter that can bring people back from the dead. So the thing about it is, is that it's not perfect. And the people return to the living world, sort of like transparent and distant and and sad. They're not who they once were. And I kind of reminded Cohen of that. And then he looked at me and he said, yeah, but at least you'd be here. That would be enough. Um, And that one was hard for me because I knew that the layers behind that for him were a lot more than this conversation about where we all be in a hundred years. You know, he was thinking at that point about death and mortality um, in a much deeper way than he was kind of like letting on to me. And he started to ask me questions like, do you think daddy will have a long life or a short life? Is daddy going to have to talk with a computer like Steve Gleason does someday? And then another time we were in the car, we were going to hockey practice and he, and this was very, and the thing that really stopped me about this one is that he very matter of factly said this. He didn't say it with any sadness or like bitterness, but he just kind of was looking out the window and he was like, my life is harder than a lot of other kids. And I wonder what you remember about the kids during that time. Well, Willa kept and continues to keep a lot to herself. Mm-hmm. So she had a very, um, I would say, minimal outward reaction. Mm-hmm. Cohen, at every single meal, had fear and anxiety. And when I was clearing my throat, I wasn't ever in a position to talk because that couldn't make it worse. Mm-hmm. And so Colin pretty quickly developed a communication system where he would ask, Daddy, uh, are you okay? 
and I would give him a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that it was going to take a minute to clear his throat, but I wanted to relay that mm-hmm. instantly. And he needed to know it instantly. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, he asked that pretty routinely. Yeah. And not that I'm eating that often, but if I'm drinking or eating something, then odds are at some point during that, whatever it is, on a daily basis, he's asking. Mm-hmm. And I recall you saying every day, Cohen, coughing is not choking. Choking is silent. Coughing is not choking. Yeah, it became our like family mantra. And I remember, and the difference between Cohen and Willa at this point was that I remember Willa, like she'd be sitting at the table coloring or something while you were trying to eat because that's all you were doing at that point, sitting in your spot at the table and trying to eat. And you'd be coughing and Colin would be kind of having this like low level sort of panic attack. And Willa would be like, it's okay, Cohen, daddy's okay. Coughing's not choking. And she would like never stop mm-hmm. coloring. And so I really thought like, Willa's still little enough to just kind of accept what we're giving her about what's happening. And do you remember the time you guys went sledding last year? Mm-hmm. Remember she met that little boy? So she didn't know. Yeah. yeah. And this was kind of in the thick of the thick of it. And she kind of like says to this little boy, like, my daddy, my daddy's not like other daddies. He has one hand and sometimes he talks funny. And then he, <laughs> she jumped on her sled oh, and like away she went. And so I really thought like, oh, Willis, Willis doing okay. And so I knew I really needed to like help Cohen because Cohen was not doing okay. I started putting them to sleep at night again because like laying with them when they were falling asleep because that was when the, especially Cohen would kind of like – asked me his questions and talked to me about what was going on. And I found it interesting during that time that I don't like, he wanted to know if you were okay, but he didn't ask those questions to you. And I wonder why, I don't know. Did he ever ask you anything like that? Like our, about ALS or about. Your Not too often. There was a night that you called me in. Yeah. And I thought it was like, they asked whether I would have a long life or a short life. Yeah. But no, I think he found you to be a safer place to ask it. And he was obviously afraid of the answers. Yeah. When you're afraid of an answer, you don't ask the question. Yeah. You start to have nightmares that you would choke and die. And yeah, it was just brutal. I remember during that time, too, you got a cold and we had no idea like how. A, how much a cold could impact your voice. And we already talked a little bit at the very beginning about the mucus. And so then the mucus from the cold impacted your voice in such a significant way that I really thought you were losing your voice. Mm-hmm. Like I thought not losing your voice in the sense that you wouldn't be able to speak, but like nobody could understand you. And when you're going for your like nightly milkshake and Terry queen, there were nights where you asked me to call them and order it for you because nobody could understand what you were saying. It was, it was beyond frustrating because I already had these challenges of my soft palate kind of collapsing mm-hmm. and what have you sucking in my throat mm-hmm. and then masks and then a cold on top of that. And then a Dairy Queen again, they had those plastic shields, uh, really from countertop to the ceiling mm-hmm. with a little gap at the top. So I'm trying to lean back, which allows you to project some. Mm-hmm. and articulate this. And when that wasn't being understood, it was 
really, really, really frustrating. Right? More frustrating than concerning because you can't believe that this simple thing you can't articulate well enough. Yeah. yeah. It was such a hard time for me personally. Like I would, I had days where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I would cancel whatever walks I had with friends and I would just kind of cry all day long. And I could do that because I'm home and I could spend a lot of time on my sadness. As we all know, I do spend a lot of time on my sadness, (laughs) but I could do that. And I did that. And it was good that I did that. And, you know, I'm proud of myself for doing that, but you were working like you were going about your life and the most in like in, in the most that you could at that point. And, you know, I always, I always worry about you not paying enough attention to your sort of mental health um, and sort of giving yourself a time and space to, to deal with what's going on with your body um, sort of the emotional part of that. And so I wondered like what your, if you could, if you look back on it, what did your, what did your grief look like during that time? And how did you sort of deal with all of it? I think that if, and to the extent that I deviate from the things that I usually do, so work, coaching, Cohen and Will and hockey, uh, coaching baseball, going to the outdoor rink. Uh, the, if I deviate from those, then it's dedicated to me that something is wrong, something's worse than it was. And so when my hand went away, so to speak, nothing changed from a lifestyle and work standpoint. And in dealing with life, facial muscles, smile, swallowing, nothing still really had to change professionally or in the way that I related to the kids, aside from not eating. Mm -hmm. And so to continue on without really any real change in who I saw myself as, I, I found that to be the way that I maintained my positivity and maintain my confidence that I could deal with this, to, to sit and to dwell or wallow in this that, that I wouldn't find productive, and I didn't see you to do that. Do you think that your, I guess you would say that it's like your want to not wallow or dwell, but do you think that sometimes gets in your way of taking action that you need to take for things that are coming? It could. I guess I didn't realize that my swallowing was as bad as it was. We went for that swallowing test (laughs) at uh, South Health. November 20th. November 20th. And that wound up being 10 days before feeding tube placed. Mm -hmm. And I went in and take you in and you just see that this machine, x-ray machine, and you're going to swallow a series of different consistencies. Mixed with barium. Yeah. So uh, something really thin. Uh, Water, pudding. nectar, pudding, yeah. like just different thicknesses going up and up to solid food. And so 
I was, I'm going to say, three tests in. And I was thinking, I'm doing really well here. <laughs> and they stopped the test. Yeah. And not because I was doing well. No. <laughs> no, it was, um, I think for me, we talk a lot about having this motto. We've talked about this since you were diagnosed. Like, believe in the best and plan for the worst. And I think that I sometimes feel like I'm the one planning for the worst. <laughs> and that can be hard mm-hmm. in in truth. Like, whether it's saying, now we have to go to the ALS clinic. Now we have to message bank. Now we have to voice bank. Now we have to, now we have to prepare for more losses. It's hard because... Because you're not getting there first, I often feel like I don't have as like I'm, I'm this I'm bringing all this bad news and it's like I'm I'm not having all the faith and all the hope that I should have, because I'm like we have to do this now we have to do this now and we don't have to talk about this now and and there's always something right there's always another thing and and it, it, it's still happening it's still happening right for us we just had a, a conversation like this last week but. It is a challenge, I think, for me to feel like I am the one kind of making you aware of what could come next. And that's fair. Yeah. My coping mechanism is to believe that I'm really no different. Mm-hmm. And due to this medication that I'm on, Yes, I've had losses, but as you said, even sitting here today, nearly two and a half years later, I haven't lost anything completely. Mm-mm. And so I, I tend to, I tend not want my mindset altered or disrupted. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is unfair to you because you do go look down the road when I've had indicators but down the road to something like today. Mm-hmm. And you've done all the work and research and talking to doctors and and I feel really grateful for that. And I you're right, I, I, I don't necessarily want to ponder mm-hmm. being worse. And so I am I am second to those places that we do wind up getting to. Yeah. It's a it's a weird and sort of hard dynamic. And certainly every, I'm sure every family going through something like this has, has to deal with this to a certain degree. And I think also because I'm the caregiver, like I'm the one doing all the research. I'm the one who really understands the disease probably more thoroughly than you do. No question. That I just have more things entering my headspace of like, this could happen. And then this could happen. And then, and, and as I've said before, I'm a recovering pessimist and my dad like taught me to like to live by Murphy's law, like whatever can go wrong will go wrong. And, and so I have that kind of prepare for the worst mentality anyway, that I work hard to, to like fight against, but it is a challenge. And I think it would be unfair to not, to not talk about that side of it. And I think this whole other episode, but like the challenges of navigating a marriage and something like this, they're real. No, No one has a perfect marriage, obviously. And then throw something like this on top of it. And it, it's hard. I'm, I'm proud of the way that we've handled it. I think that we have, when I have to bring something like this up to, I sort of like brace myself as I know I'm going to get this initial like blowback from you. 
And then usually after, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of talking or of me telling you I'm going to leave wherever we are because you're being a jerk. This summarizes like every <laughs> argument you've ever had. Then you're like, okay, I'm sorry. I see what you're saying. But <laughs> but anyway, the, this has been a hard, a hard part of it. And, and certainly the feeding tube was was one thing that I said we need to get this and we need to talk start talking to people about this now. The the day of the swallowing test, I was I think one of the hardest single days for me in this process since you were diagnosed. And that really caught me off guard. Um because I we 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 went in there like hoping that they would tell us you needed it. Like I was like, well, I want him to not be doing so bad, but I want him to be doing bad enough that they're going to be like, yeah, you should get a feeding tube quickly. But yeah, I, I wrote a post about this um, and I want to read it. And it this coincided with American Thanksgiving. And um, American Thanksgiving obviously is in late November. And I kind of had this idea that I wouldn't cook a whole lot. And I ended up cooking a whole lot. And I tried to think of things that you could eat that would maybe be pretty simple. and um, And none of it worked. And it was the worst night that we had. I think. And we were like, what, three days before your feeding tube surgery at that point, right? Something like that. It was really close. Yeah. We were about to sit down. We were about to sit down and right. I had made roast carrots. I thought, oh, I bet that could be a good food for Chris. He took a standing bite, which is against the rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and teeny little bite of roast carrot got, like little bit of roast carrot got stuck in his throat. And he spent like an hour and a half trying to cough it up. You were not choking, but you could no. feel it in your throat and you just coughed and coughed and coughed. And it was hard. And then the and that combined with the swallow test. So I'm going to just read that post. Next week, a surgeon will cut into my husband's abdomen. He'll put a tube down Chris's nose and blow up his stomach like a balloon. And then he will poke through it and stick a tube from the outside in, blow up another little balloon in that tube so it doesn't come out of Chris's stomach, stitch around the opening in his skin, and just like that, Chris will have a feeding tube. Next week, we gain some things. A better quality of life for Chris, no more worry about him losing weight, and less worry about him choking or aspirating and getting pneumonia. But as the four of us sat around the Thanksgiving spread at the dinner table last night, Chris coughing on the one bite of roasted carrot he tried to eat, Willa rubbing his arm, Cohen crying into his dinner plate, and me feeling sadness down in my bones. It was never more clear that next week we lose some things too. This week I have been grieving those losses. I have been dragging myself through existence, forcing one foot in front of the other. This week I am shedding parts of this life I love. With a deliberateness I've grown used to, I will lift them from my heart with great care and turn them over in my hands. These things that might be small in the scheme of it all, but are dear to me nonetheless. I will look at them and be grateful for them and cry for them. I will spend time with them and then I will start moving on from them. I will separate these parts of me from my present self. And as I start to reimagine my life without them, I will mourn. I will wrap them in my love and put them away up high on the shelf of things I have loved and lost, things time or fate has taken from me, things I will never forget but have to let go of in order to keep going. I am so careful in this carving away, diligent to take only what's necessary right now, leaving behind as much as I can, even if that means repeating this process again tomorrow or next week or next month. Taken from the whole, these parts of me are so fragile. 
and their excision leaves me feeling the same. Each time I emerge from the shedding a little bit more broken, a bit more fractured, another piece taken from the whole of me, another part of my life tucked carefully among the remnants of my previous self. Sometimes I set aside time for this, and other times I move through my life, grieving in motion. I look up from the bathroom sink and see my own sad eyes staring back at me in the mirror. I cook dinner as my tears fall, sizzling in the frying pan. I get in the car after going to the grocery store and find I'm squeezing the steering wheel so hard my hands are shaking. I start laughing, really laughing, and then my head catches up with my heart, and suddenly I feel betrayed by my own happiness. Chris's swallowing started changing in August, and last week, just three short months later, I stood in a room with a speech-language pathologist and an x-ray technician, watching Chris swallow different consistencies of food and drink mixed with barium so they could see what was going wrong. What was going wrong, I could tell immediately, was everything. I saw her body language. I heard her quiet mutters. I saw the water, the nectar, the pudding, sloshing down his throat. I saw so much of it staying there, even after his swallowing had finished. She turned on the microphone and spoke into the room where Chris was failing a test he could not control. That's it, she said. Thanks so much. She stood from her chair and said to me, It's too dangerous for him to swallow any solids. I can't take the risk he would aspirate the barium. We moved into another room and she showed us the images. Every part of his swallowing is affected, she said. I'm putting in an urgent request for feeding tube placement, she said. His tongue is weak, she said. For the first time in more than a year, I cried in one of Chris's appointments. She got up to look for tissues. Chris squeezed my hand to reassure me. It's okay, he said. I'm okay. I heard myself apologize for my tears while in my head one phrase played on a loop. With the tongue goes the speech. With the tongue goes the speech. With the tongue goes the speech. I cried all the way home, and then I cried for an hour once we got there. I splashed water on my face, went to get the kids from school, and managed to get there and back before I retreated to my bathroom, locked the door, slid to the floor, and cried again. All day, I cried for his voice, for his laugh, for the comfortable cadence of conversations with my best friend, for the stories he tells, for how he sounds when he tells me I'm beautiful, and for the way his Boston accent, lost long ago after living in Syracuse, New York, and St. Paul, Minnesota, reappears when he's had too much to drink. His voice, I thought, was the extent of my sadness. The feeding tube we want. We knew his swallowing was bad. We know it will get worse. I was grieving his voice, not his swallowing. But the next day I was making a taco for our son and warming a tortilla on a skillet. Chris walked by and said, oh, that smells good. I wish I could eat that. And these other floodgates opened, ones I didn't know held so much sadness behind them. I had spent so much time focusing on his voice, I had missed the growing swell of sadness about food, about cooking for Chris, about having meals with Chris, about watching him enjoy things he loves and making him things he loves. I thought about date nights and dinners out, things I hadn't realized were changing because we aren't going out right now anyway. I thought about all the meals we had shared in our 15 years together, about how we fell in love in quiet conversations over countless restaurant tables. I thought about how much I love cooking for my family and how that has all changed now. I thought about how much Chris loves good crusty bread and medium rare filet and juicy fall apart brisket and lobster drenched in butter and fresh sweet corn on a summer day. I thought about how at parties we've gone to where they have someone shucking oysters, Chris ends up on a first-name basis with them because he stands there the entire night slurping down as many oysters as he can. 
I thought about how he loves vegetables so much he'll eat raw green beans and how he devours Sour Patch Kids and Swedish fish like a little kid and how spicy food makes his head itch. I thought about sharing popcorn with him on the couch and sitting on the porch on a sunny summer night with beers in our hands and taking family bike rides to our favorite ice cream spot. And then I thought about how at Thanksgiving dinner, I told the kids, this makes us sad and it will always be sad that daddy can't eat food he loves, but as time passes, we will get used to it. And how Cohen with his glasses lenses covered in tears said, I don't want to get used to it. And how this all makes me want to crawl out of my own skin because today the skin I'm in feels claustrophobic, like there's no oxygen, no fresh air, and I'm suffocating. I know that's not true, that what I really need to do is shed not this skin, but this part of me. Because even though that shedding leaves me a bit more fragile, something else happens too. My other senses, my sense of joy, of beauty, of grace, of love and compassion and gratitude are heightened. After each loss, I return to a life that is richer, deeper, and more beautiful than it was before. So instead of flailing in my sadness, I will ground myself in it. I will breathe it in and appreciate it and be gentle with it. I will respect it and what it's telling me. I will let it change me. Each time I have to cut away the parts of this life that I don't get to keep, after I have cried until my eyes are swollen and red and I've said goodbye to things I cherish, I know I will rise up. And someday soon, once this swell of sadness has passed, I know I will loosen the grip on the steering wheel, take a deep breath, and sing at the top of my lungs again. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. I wrote a lot last fall, I realized, because I mostly write when I am terribly sad. You had a lot to write a lot. <laughs> I did. I was very, very sad last fall. It was very hard. It was so hard. And I remember the day that we went to get your feeding tube and Cohen had written on the calendar, eating tube, finally. <laughs> <laughs> and really everything went away for him after that. Yeah, but... The card you gave me at Christmas. Yeah. And I'm recalling the best I can, but I see it daily on my nightstand. He said all the usual wonderful things he would. And then he said, thank you so much for getting a feeding tube. Mm -hmm. It has brought so much joy to our family. I think he thought that was the best gift he got that year. Oh, yeah. Because his anxiety was gone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was on that Thanksgiving day, too, that I realized that Willa wasn't as okay as I thought she was. Because Cohen was really having that panic attack. And he was like, you were coughing and coughing and coughing. Your head was in your hands. You were exhausted. It was hard work to cough for like 90 minutes straight. And we didn't know what to do. Like, should we go to the hospital because this is stuck in your throat or what? And Cohen, I'm on, sitting on the couch and Cohen's lying down on the couch and his head is in my lap and I'm rubbing his back and I'm taking deep breaths with him. And all of a sudden I'm like, where's Willa? And so I look around and Willa is sitting at my feet in a fetal position facing the couch. Like she's curled up in a little ball, like her eyes are hidden. And I said, oh, Willa, what's going on with you, sweetheart? Are you okay? And she said, oh, mommy, I just like to keep it all in. And I was like, oh my God. And that's when we found a therapist for a while. <laughs> um, but it was a it was an awakening for me to say like it's not just that Will is little and she just t- accepts things like a little kid. Like Will is very smart and very like 
attuned to what's going on around her. And it was a reminder for me that just because she's not telling me doesn't mean she's not having her own stuff. Right. Yeah. So the day of the surgery was horrible. <laughs> yeah, it was. For you, as much or more. <laughs> well, they had told us, obviously this all happened during COVID. And they had told us that when I talked to the person who told me what was going to happen that day, that I would be able to stay with you. And so we get to the hospital, we get checked in, and then we go to the, it was like the day surgery. And they look at me when I walked in, like I had three heads. They're like, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, he, it's, he's having a feeding tube. You can't be here. So what do you mean? The lady who called me said I could be here. Nope. She didn't. She misunderstood. You can't be here. His, he'll, we'll call you when he's done and you can come get him. I said, well, he's not. He had, when you have, when you have ALS, you need to stay to monitor, they can monitor your breathing after you have a feeding tube, you need to spend the night. And so even though you were having the surgery in the day surgery thing, then you were getting put in a, so anyway, it was, so all of a sudden I just had to say goodbye to you. Like, yeah. In a five minute span, I went from this mental construct of all of it to you were gone. I had a gown on and I had a white plastic bag with my stuff in it. Mm-hmm. That sucked. <laughs> I ended up sitting in the hospital parking lot for most of the morning because I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know exactly how long it would take and I wanted to be there. They had told me then that I would be able to come in once you were done with the surgery. And so I went, I tried to go home for a little bit and I was like, well, this is pointless. I'd rather be sitting in the parking lot. So I went back and I sat in the parking lot again. And it wasn't until it was dark out by the time they said that I could, you called me and said that you were in, you were at a room now and that I could come in. Mm-hmm. So I come in, you didn't have your stuff because I thought I was going to be able to stay and I could go out and get your stuff when we needed it. So now I'm going to bring you your stuff. So I have like your pillow and the kids have like, what did the kids we put have, in your bag? We have a ridiculous uh, team mascot collection. <laughs> So Cohen had sent along Carlton the Fair, the least mascot. It's his favorite stuffy. And Will had sent Yuppie from the Canadians. Yeah. And I looked at this bag and it was so heavy. <laughs> she had sent this enormous snow globe. It easily shattered. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this this was set up on a little bedside table. Yeah. And a heavy frame mm-hmm. of them sitting on Santa's lap at Market Mall. <laughs> It was, it was a lot of thought put into that. It was like a ceramic. It looked like a little fireplace. It was it's ridiculous how much you had. It was like a clown car truck. I just kept pulling things out. Yeah. So finally, I think I'm going to get to go in and I walk in and they're like, oh no, he can't, you can't go see him because he's on an outbreak floor. <laughs> and I was like, say, say what? <laughs> like Chris has asthma and he has ALS. So he has a couple pretty significant, like, comorbidities for COVID. And I was like, why on earth is he there? And the nurse, I don't, I don't know. That is kind of a weird thing that they put him on that. And I was just like, so I had to leave your stuff on a cart and go home again. And I don't know, your boss, Brad had given us a really good bottle of scotch mm-hmm. and I drank a lot of it that night. <laughs> the big gift was half gone when I got home 48 hours later. Uh, it was hard. I had the kids. They slept in bed with me. They went to school the next day. And then the next day they had to like give me special permission to come onto the ward because they had to teach me how to use your, they were going to like let you leave without like showing me how to use the feeding tube. 
it was ridiculous, but, but, but you got it. And we always, you always chime in for on people's posts on Twitter, ALS patients who are talking about getting their feeding tubes. So I wonder if you can kind of tell them, even though it was a horrible day. <laughs> yeah. I, I often see people commenting to the effect of, you know, I'm really trying to avoid a feeding tube mm-hmm. or putting this off as long as I can. And I think it is one of the easiest mm-hmm. and best things that I did for myself and anyone could do for themselves. Mm-hmm. The day that I had the surgery, I weighed 169.4. Mm-hmm. And I had been months earlier, I don't know how many months, but I had been 190. For years, you weighed 190, yeah. Steadily. Mm-hmm. And I was down 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I did look good at my stomach. It looked <laughs> good. It just wasn't the right thing. And so a day came, probably eight weeks later, just a total guess, that I stepped on the scale and it said 180. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited. Everyone wants to lose weight. I get incredibly excited at the addition of fractures of, of a pound. Mm-hmm. And, and Kelsey, being who she is, began taking this idea of what's Chris going to eat into her own hands. Because the government, which is wonderful in this case, uh, to supervise everything I need to have in the way of yeah. formula. Here in Alberta, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to eat formula all the time. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel like what a person does. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, she continues to adapt and improve what she's doing to maximize calories and minimize volume. Mm-hmm. And so after about a week or two of formula, she fed me real food on a routine basis through the tube. And I would still eat a little at times, things that I felt comfortable with, but the food no longer was consuming my day. And both actively in terms of physical effort and mentally, Mm -hmm. it became easy and I gained weight and that felt like a victory over this. Yeah. And for me, it was stepping into a caregiver role in a way that I had not done. And I, I mean, it was like such an, such a science experiment. You know, I found a couple like nutritionists who do a lot, what they call blended food, blended diets, which is when you syringe feed somebody who's feeding tube versus using something that looks like an IV bag and it's like gravity drip bag. And that's what the formula can go in. And it was a lot of work for me. And so it was stressful. For you too. It was very stressful for me because then something would give you heartburn or then something would give you reflux or you were getting too full. You were uncomfortably full. And so then I needed to find a way to get, you know, and on top of that, we're not eating a normal amount of calories. Like we are finding you need 4,000 calories a day to sort of like maintain your weight. Those weeks and months right after we logged every single <laughs> ingredient yes. and counted. So ingredient Measurement calories. Yep. And you would say this one is 
1,018 calories. Mm -hmm. This one is 962, and so the next one needs to be 1,038. And that really was revolt to us, a challenge, and it consumed us. Yeah, it was a lot. And I think then I had the sadness about not being able to cook for you, which surprised me, and it lingered for a really long time. And then, I mean, still deal with it. But and I and then I just had the exhaustion of the fact that like I was already in the kitchen for all these hours, like making food for you, and then I had to feed other people, and the kids and I ended up eating. I don't know, whatever people were so kind to us during that time. And they gave us lots of gift cards to restaurants and skip the dishes. And we took, we did a lot of takeout and, um, it was a lot for me. It was hard. Uh, and, and I have a handle on it now. And so I think, you know, when you're saying like the feeding tube was the best thing you ever did and yes, it was, it was the best thing we ever did. And we, we doing it earlier would have only been of benefit to us. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't hard but it was pretty hard for me like it was a lot of work for me like you don't take the easy way out and the easy way out was to do formula six cans a day yeah. of formula i call them cans and a six wasn't enough to do eight mm-hmm. but you didn't like the shared content and you didn't like the idea of that being my diet for life and neither did you i mean that was the no. other thing is like if you said to me hey i'm good with this this is fine But I also like open those cans of formula every single day and I just smell them every single day. I know you were burping them every single day. Definitely taste. I hated it. And I was like, we can't keep doing this. So anyway, much like when you have an infant and you're trying to decide whether you should breastfeed or formula feed (laughs) and they say a fed baby is the best baby. (laughs) Uh, This is the same thing. And so if you are an ALS patient and you're dealing with a feeding tube, formula is nutritionally sound and it has all the vitamins and minerals you need. And if that's the thing for you, then that's absolutely what you should do. We have a friend who has a feeding tube and he has used formula exclusively for since he had a feeding tube, probably almost for a decade. Mm -hmm. And so that works for him. And so you do what works for you. And I do make, I do have a habit of making things harder for myself. So we've talked in the past about the things that you've lost and like where they are on the scale for you of like, if I could have this back, if I could have that back and you have said your smile more than your hand and more than, than eating. But I do wonder really like what you've had a feeding tube now for nine months. Mm -hmm. And, and I do wonder what, what it has been like for you to really not eat. I don't think about wanting to eat whatever else is anywhere near as much as you probably think, or I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I consume a ton of calories lately, easily 4,000 a day. And so I'm not often hungry. And if you're not hungry, then you're not as sensitive to the fact that you're not eating whatever else is eating. And I'm really grateful and we're both pretty stunned, I think. But I don't really think my swallowing is any worse today than it was in the days after that surgery. 
mm-hmm. because I still eat, I still have to say sample mm-hmm. enough food that I feel like if we're out to dinner, which is often often due to COVID, or there's something I really like, I can often sample it. Mm-hmm. So if it's a, you know, piece of medium rare steak, I can do a small bite of that. The other day, corn on the cob looked really good. And I took like the tiniest two or three or four kernel bite. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and, and I, there are things I didn't think, there are things I thought I was done with. Mm-hmm. I thought I was done drinking beer. And that was October, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I went, I would say two months without having one. Mm-hmm. And I would look at you, have a beer, and I would think, this is crazy that I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And then I realized around Christmas, Christmas Eve, that I could. And we started doing those really bad pours <laughs> and spooning out the foam. Yes, because the bubbles and the foam were the problem. So I learned to adapt. Even this last week, two days ago, I had three full glasses mm-hmm. of water. And I went months upon months without drinking water. Mm-hmm. Out of fear. And out of reality, too. And what I've realized is that I've learned how to swallow that differently. Mm-hmm. I don't gulp it. I push it with my tongue down my throat in very measured months. Mm-hmm. And so today sitting here, I don't feel the loss that I was feeling as I was losing it. And some of that is just the process of mourning mm-hmm. that I've kind of come on the other side of it. Part of it is that I can do this enough that there's gratitude and fulfillment in being able to. Mm-hmm. And part of it is when you don't have something, it's gone. So I, I just... I've accepted that. And I don't sit there at dinner and be drudgy, guys. Mm-hmm. I might sit in a reclined position and have drinks on doing something. Yeah. But I uh, I don't find that to be a loss that bothers me anywhere near my facial appearance mm-hmm. and smile and talking. When standing and trying to project, those things drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. Swallowing, eating, when at hand, they're not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to go back to the thing about your swallowing, like I think realistically I thought within a few weeks you would not be swallowing anything. And the way that it really has just sort of like, again, with a you know knock on wood, the way that it has leveled off has been pretty crazy. And I think it really speaks to, you know, what – We've heard from some doctors about getting proper nutrition and what that can do for progression. But going back to the thing I read about the blog post I read, like uh, with the tongue goes the speech, the thing that I was sad about that day at that swallowing test was that I thought within days or weeks or at the most months, because they said your tongue was affected, that I would, you would wake up and you would have slurred speech 
Because when you hear people with ALS talking, one thing that you'll hear is their speech is slurred because their tongue is not moving as fast as they need it to in order to speak. And, and so when she said that your tongue was affected, I thought, well, game over, like your, your voice is going, it's going to be gone soon. Like, because to, to that point for us, if a muscle had been affected, it went like that. Like if a part of your body, a body part, not a specific muscle, but your hand, your forearm, your smile, your lips, your eye, like eyebrows, your face, all your face muscles, things went so fast. So I just thought, well, there's no way, like this has already started. And, it, and, you know, here we are sitting nine months later and your voice is like markedly better than it was in those months after you had your feeding tube surgery, when you were dealing, when we hadn't figured out this specific like thing that you take that I give you and you through your feeding tube for, for your mucus and that has helped. And then, um, the fact that you got over that cold, that was so bad. And it's baffling. And I think it's a reminder that like, we have no idea why anything is happening to you that's happening to you. None. I am a complete science experiment. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the, I guess, unnerving, but also, also kind of comforting in parts of this disease especially with the medication one, the doctors really have no idea mm-hmm. what's happening next with me. Yeah. And so I know as well or better than they do what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I never really walk into a doctor's visit thinking, I'm going to get news that is going to just be a gut punch. Yeah. I've got news for them. <laughs> More likely that they will for me. Absolutely. So I do recall sitting with you at the table. Mm-hmm. I think it was the day of the swallowing test. And you saying something to the effect of, I'd be really surprised if at this time next year, you're still talking. Mm-hmm. And I think of that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I get excited for that anniversary. Mm-hmm. Because when something has happened, the loss of my hand, the change in my face, the swelling. When the next year comes around, the weather changes to that particular time of year. It takes both of us, I know, back to that time when there was a change and all the emotions that we felt then. Mm-hmm. And so to approach the anniversary of the feeding tube and changes in appearance and uh, my talking, mm-hmm. And to think, I think I sound clearer today mm-hmm. than that. And I weigh more than I did then. Mm-hmm. That, that trajectory, yeah. that curve, when you plot it with this disease, that does not exist. Mm-hmm. And I draw a ton of energy from that. Yeah. I mean, and it's like you said, we, this place that we exist is, is very unnerving. It's, it's like somewhere in between being healthy and, I don't know, being and dying. I don't even really think of you as sick. But you live in this constant place of like, what's going to happen? Like, what might happen next, right? And, and you don't know because you're not cured. 
We know that. You're not in remission. Um, We know this disease is still working in your body, but we don't know what that means. And it is a hard place to exist. Um, It's a lonely place to exist. Not a lot of people understand this space in life. Um, But this place is where the hope lies. We, in our boldest statements, describe the experience that I'm in, the fear I'm in now, and have been at times before, as a plateau. Mm-hmm. And even then, we feel anxious just to say that yeah. because you don't want to say something that you think that's unrealistic or we're tempting fate. Exactly. But it's a really good feeling to be in that place. Yeah, it is. And I think going back to what I said at the very beginning here, it was hard to remember all of this. It was hard to really go back through it and remember how painful this time last year was for us as a family and for us individually and for our kids. And at the same time, you know, when I get ready for these conversations, I go through text messages and I go through photos. And again, I'm amazed at all the joy that we had during this time last year, you know, like pictures of taking Willa horseback riding for her birthday and, you know, videos of you playing Sunday morning baseball with Cohen and a bunch of other dads and kids until it was too cold. And then, you know, videos of you, of all of us at the at an outdoor rink when we could do that. And, you know, pictures of you and your buddies outside playing poker with a bunch of heaters around the table and, you know, I think that the thing, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that even in those really dark moments, we find a way to pull ourselves up and still, and still see the beautiful things in life. It's hard to do, but it's so worth it. I don't know what else I would do. Yeah. I, I have a hope and a slowing or a occasional stopping for some unknown period of time mm-hmm. of this disease. And that wasn't what I was told. Yeah. I was told a year. Mm-hmm. And that is two years and three months ago. Mm-hmm. And I played baseball two days ago. I cycled today. Like it's, this is, this is pretty awesome. Yeah. Pretty awesome. As your shirt says. I don't know if I think that I'm conceited. No, no, no. This is the Gleason t-shirt. <laughs> Chris is wearing a Team Gleason shirt that says awesome ain't easy. <laughs> and it's true. No, Cheers. it's not a lot easier than I thought. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm. So far. They're amazing. Well, just trying to think I'm the same guy I was and... For the most part, I am. You are. Thanks for this. Anytime. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> <laughs> One thirty-five episodes okay. max. All right, I'll let you go. Okay, I right. love you. I love you too. A couple of weeks ago, I finally picked up the book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, by Duke Divinity Professor and Manitoba native Kate Bowler. 
Some years back, Kate was diagnosed with terminal cancer that should have killed her quite quickly, but much like Chris, she's alive thanks to a clinical trial. She writes beautifully about how confusing it can be when you are living with a disease that should have killed you already. She says, I have tried, really tried, to make others understand. When the trial first started, yes, we had hoped that the tumors would shrivel up and disappear, and that I would simply maintain my progress with a regimen of immunotherapies. That is how I made sense of the word incurable. But in the intervening months, the tumors have stopped shrinking, and our expectations for a full recovery have dried up. We hope instead that the tumors will not grow faster than the immunotherapies can shrink them. I need to make clear to my friends and family that I pray for a reduced cancer, but that I must be grateful for what I have. It feels impossible to translate the kernel of truth. I'm not dying. I'm not terminal. I am keeping vigil in the place of almost death. I stand in the in-between where everyone must pass, but so few can remain. Like Kate, we have taken up residence in the in-between. It's a hard place to exist. But like I said when I was talking to Chris, it's also where the hope is. Thanks, as always, for listening. The past is never past. Just residue.